Shalom Cornerstone. It's great to be with you on this 4th of July weekend. It's kind of become a tradition for me to be here uh, with you on that 4th of July weekend. So let me say, Happy Independence Day. Most of us know somewhat why we celebrate the 4th of July as Independence Day, but it was actually on July 2nd of 1776 that the Continental Congress declared officially independence from Great Britain, but it was the 4th of July, 1776, that the Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence, the focal point of our celebration. And you know that second paragraph is so famous. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as Americans, don't we love our rights? We like to insist upon our rights, and we feel good especially about asserting our independence. But if you think about it, the irony of Independence Day and the Declaration of Independence is that very fact that these unalienable rights were and are ours only because of God and because of our dependence upon our Creator. The one who created us as equal is the foundation of these unalienable rights. So when we abandon our faith or trust in that creator God, we lose the very foundation for claiming our own independence. It's only as we maintain our dependence upon God that we can really truly celebrate our independence. And perhaps maybe this is one of the reasons why our country is finding itself on such shaky ground these days, because as a nation, we can easily forget the very one who endowed us with these rights to begin with. So I believe that the best way to celebrate Independence Day is to reaffirm our own dependence on God so that each of us determines to make a, a declaration of dependence on Him. That's what I'm calling the message this weekend, our declaration of dependence. And uh, I think that's particularly appropriate considering the current series that we've been having here at Cornerstone, Abide. You know, Jesus told us to abide in Him. And throughout these past number of weeks, we've been and will be considering how to do just that. And if you think about it, abiding really is a posture of dependence upon God. When we're abiding in Jesus, we're resting in Him, secure in Him, not running ahead of Him or lagging behind Him, not seeking satisfaction apart from Him, but rather seeking our entire well-being, that human flourishing that we all long for, that comes from Him being the very source of our lives. And we are wholly dependent upon Him for that kind of flourishing. Now, thousands of years before July 4th, 1776, another declaration of dependence was penned for all the world to see and to read and to understand. And that declaration is found in the Bible in Psalm 91. 
And next to Psalm 23, actually, these 16 verses of Psalm 91 are the most often quoted in all of human history. So allow me to read them to you now. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Ah, these famous words, this psalm, uh, we don't actually know who the author is. Most of the psalms, these poems from ancient times, were crafted by King David. Uh, but because there's no inscription on this particular psalm, it's not clear who actually wrote it. However, the rabbis teach that this psalm, Psalm 91, was written by none other than Moses, who also wrote the previous psalm, Psalm 90, where there is an inscription which says, the psalm of Moses. And actually, I believe that the rabbis are correct in this, and I'll explain a little bit later on why I think that is. But one of the other things about this uh, psalm, which makes it very unique, is that scholars call it an apotropaic uh, psalm. And that word apotropaic means to avert evil. In other words, people throughout history have viewed this psalm as uh, having special kind of powers to protect. And there's even been some superstition associated with the recitation of this psalm that it can be like an incantation to ward off evil, to protect people from harm. For example, archaeologists have found many evidences of amulets, these intricate pieces of jewelry that have inscribed on them portions of Psalm 91. And so people would wear these for protection. And even today, 
Psalm 91 is known as the soldier's psalm or the soldier's prayer because it has been given to soldiers before they go into battle. Everything from the Civil War, which of course the 4th of July is very connected to, all the way through until modern day. And there's a story, for example, in World War I that the 91st Brigade would recite Psalm 91 every single day and that while fighting one of the bloodiest battles in World War I, there was not one single casualty resulting from that conflict while other different brigades had as much as 90% loss. So these kinds of stories have been around and have circulated around Psalm 91 that there's something special, some sort of a supernatural protection that comes from reciting this psalm. Not so sure about that. To be honest with you, um, the Bible is not a book of magical incantations uh, to be recited for protection. God is our protector, and he's given us his word to tell us his intentions, to tell us more about who he is, and not to use as some sort of a magic talisman. It is a supernatural book, given to us by a supernatural God who has made supernatural uh, promises to us. But God's word is to be relied upon and believed in because of who he is. And it teaches us how to abide in him. Abiding doesn't keep us from difficult times. We've been going through difficult times. This psalm says, no evil shall befall you, and yet evil does. This psalm says, nor shall any plague come near you, and yet we've been living through a pandemic. No, abiding and the promise of Psalm 91 doesn't necessarily keep us from all harm, but it preserves us even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of harm. And while all 16 verses of this psalm are incredibly instructive, today I just want to camp out on the first verse of Psalm 91. The other 15 are all further explanations of these amazing, actually six Hebrew words that make up this actually a couplet. You know, with poetry you have a statement and then a restatement. That's one of the forms of Hebrew poetry. And so we see that with... He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, that's the first couplet, three words, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So let's take a look at these six words and see if we can't find encouragement and hope for abiding in troubled times. The first two words are dwelling and abiding. He who dwells shall abide. These are parallel terms, gur and, and bo in Hebrew. And really the way to understand that is with the word nesting and resting. When we think about our home, you know, people who stay home at night instead of going out, they're, they're, they're nesting, right? Uh, and I think that nesting has a lot to do with our home, with a place where we can feel comfortable, where there's a sense of familiarity. I don't know about you, but I do a lot of traveling in my work in Jews for Jesus, and I always have that feeling of coming home 
that just so you're looking forward to it because you're familiar with it. It's a return you can unpack, you can take a shower, you know, especially if you've flown internationally. It's just good to be at home. And there's that sense of nesting and that relief of being in your own space. And that's the idea behind dwell, dwelling. But then there's this word abiding, which can uh, more have to do with taking a, a time of rest, really resting, relaxing. And sometimes you need to get away from home in order to rest, right? Getting away from me is sometimes the best rest that I can get because for me, for the last 20 plus years, often with Pastor Terry, we go up into the mountains together and we get away from the routine, the hustle and bustle of life and all of the constant demands and you pull back and you rest and you, you, you abide in that rest. You, you, you have a, quiet, a quieting of your soul and, and, and so we can hear the voice of the Lord perhaps better in those faraway places. And, you know, that rest, that nest, that sense of finding those places in our relationship with God is really what the psalmist is talking about here as he looks at what life should be like, even in the most challenging of circumstances. Augustine of Hippo, a great church father who wrote, uh, one of the first autobiographies in history called Confessions, he said this, our hearts are restless until they find rest in the Lord, in you. And so when we look to abide, we are both nesting and we are resting. We are at home and we are pulling away from the hustle and bustle of the routine to find our dwelling place in God. And there are actually two names here in this verse that are given for God. One in Hebrew, El Elyon, and the second, El Shaddai. Now, the second may be more familiar to some of us. You remember that song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. But actually, El Elyon is used over 60 times in the Hebrew Bible, whereas El Shaddai is used just about 40 times. So El Elyon is actually the more common of the two, and it basically means God Most High. That is the exalted one, uh, a transcendence that God has as the Holy One. He's high and lifted up, Isaiah said when he saw him in the temple. Beth Moore said, there is no high like God most high. In other words, when we get a sense of a glimpse at that high and lifted up one, it gives us a sense of thrill, uh, an amazement that we can look upon the one who created all, who's high and lifted up. And, uh, you know, uh, we in Jews for Jesus often will send uh, some of our younger staff and some college-age volunteers on the what we call the hummus trail that is when israeli uh, backpackers are going out into places like india nepal peru where there are remote areas to travel in uh, this is what a lot of israelis do when they get out of the army and so we send our people along to do that and in some of these remote areas 
Well, let's just say the grass is cheap. You know, there's a lot of marijuana that people, young people are imbibing in. And of course, our people aren't doing that, but they're traveling with them. They're in the coffee shops. They're in the youth hostels. And so oftentimes the conversation begins like this. Hey, you guys aren't smoking dope. Why? And the answer that leads to a further conversation is, well, we're high on God. And that's the image we have here, that God, who is most high, brings an exhilaration, a sense of lifting. And this is the one who we should dwell with, that we should abide with, that we should get a vision, a glimpse of the high lifted up one. And the second word that's used in this passage is the more familiar one, El Shaddai. And that word shad, the, the root, actually means breast, chest, that center part of our being that actually denotes two things, strength, God Almighty, but also nurture. Um, you know, there's a sense of honor and discipline and commitment that's associated with the chest with that strength that comes with a man who flexes his muscles. And in fact, the absence of that is something that C.S. Lewis talks about, uh, men without chests. He says, we make men without chests and expect from them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. In other words, the chest is emblematic of strength of character. And oftentimes we find ourselves among people who don't have chests. They're without that kind of character. And so when we talk about Shaddai, we talk about the character of God as almighty, as reliable, as trustworthy. And this is the one that we want to spend time with, that we want to abide with, that we want to dwell with, who's strong and protecting us even in the midst of the storm, even in the challenge of the difficulties of life. But it's not just the strength. There's, there's a, almost a feminine quality to this word shad, shaddai. Uh, the breast as in a, a mother who nurtures a child. And the psalmist picks up this language later on in Psalm 91 when he says, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. And this idea of the wings of the Almighty is mentioned numerous times throughout, throughout the scriptures. And of course, it's not saying that God has wings himself, but the image of a protecting uh, bird, or especially a mother hen, is what's co uh, connotated from this word Shaddai. I heard the story of a farmer who had a hen in his hen house, but one day a fire broke out, destroying both the house and killing that one hen. And sadly, the farmer went to see the wreckage and saw the carcass of this mother hen and nudged it with his foot. And to his great amazement, out from underneath that dead carcass scrambled four little chicks who had remained alive despite the fierce flame. And what a beautiful picture that is of the protective nature and nurture of El Shaddai, that sacrificial aspect of God's protection we'll see later on 
today is fulfilled most specifically in the Messiah Jesus himself. Well, the last two words of this first uh, verse of Psalm 91 are very interested in, in indeed interesting secret and shadow. We don't often think of these in terms of God, but God has a secret place. The Hebrew word is seter, which uh, can refer to a shelter, but more the idea of the shelter that comes from being covered up so that one cannot be seen. Uh, the overtones of protection are because actually we're hiding inside this shelter. And the, the other Hebrew word, selel, uh, the shadow, uh, has to do with a sense of protection as well, a covering. And uh, we see these kinds of ideas actually put together in numerous verses throughout the Hebrew Bible. For example, Isaiah 32 and verse 2 says, each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Psalm 32 verse 7 says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Another is Psalm 27 verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Um, I traveled for a while with a music group from Jews for Jesus called the Liberated Wailing Wall. Interesting, back in the 80s, we had a guy uh, named Michael Ledner who wrote a very familiar song that some of you might have heard or even sung before. You are my hiding place. You always fill my heart with songs of deliverance. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. A beautiful song, and I've sung it many times when I felt uh, in danger because God does promise to protect us, to preserve us. In fact, all of us, we need a secret place. All of us need to find a hiding place, especially in the difficulties of life, in the storms of life. And for me, a lot of this has come home to roost in my life as I've been backpacking over the years. Uh, various times I've felt the shelter and the shadow of the Almighty. I've felt that secret place under his wings. One place in particular is at Lake Hyatt, and I actually took a little video of when I was there, um, and I called it Cry Beach, because at that time in my life, I was, I was devastated. My, my family had been broken up, and my wife of 25 years had left me, and it came with such a shock. I've shared this before at Cornerstone. And uh, so I found myself out in the wilderness with Pastor Terry and a few other guys, and I, I went to the north side of this lonely lake, uh, mostly granite, but there was this sandy beach. And I went there, and I was all by myself, but I knew that the Lord was there, and I wept. 
I called it Cry Beach, and it still has this deep meaning to me because even though I was alone, and even though I was in despair, I knew that God was with me. And as I wept, I sensed that even he was weeping alongside me, carrying me along through that difficulty. There's another hiding place that I found out in the wilderness uh, called Granite Lake. And a number of our guys have been there. In fact, I love it so much I had an artist friend of mine paint it. And it hangs over the couch in my living room. And Granite Lake is beautiful because uh, you just it's so blue and so uh, wonderful like a basin. But there's this area where we all sit and look out over the lake and read. But just over a rock, there's a little indentation, a cleft in the rock, if you will. Um, and when you step over that, you can be within 50 feet of somebody else who's on the other side of that rock and you can't hear them, you can't see them. And oftentimes I've gone over there to pray. And I remember one time in particular, I had been reading through the book of Nehemiah and really praying that God would meet me there. And so I got up to stretch my legs from where I was sitting and I went over that little precipice and into that cleft of the rock. And I don't know how to describe it other than to say that I felt like a sense of warmth of God's presence coming over me. Some have described it as liquid love and I know what that feels like. Uh, and I experienced that unexpectedly right there in this beautiful place overlooking this beautiful lake. And that was my hiding place. And I go back there almost every year. And it doesn't always happen that I feel the same feelings, but it's a special place for me. We all need that kind of special place. Jesus himself in Matthew 6, verse 6 said, But you, when you pray, Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward openly. I've experienced the open reward of being in the secret place. How about you? If you haven't found that secret place, look for it. Seek it diligently. It may be in one specific place in what Jesus calls that room where you shut the door. It may be out in the beauty of God's creation. Wherever it is, God has multiple secret places, multiple places where we can hide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I see this imagery further in for example, the life of Moses, as well as the life of Jesus. And I just want to look at those two examples uh, as we wrap up here. First of all, it's the most unusual experience uh, in the story in the life of Moses, because Moses was anxious to have more of God. And I think that's part of what is in discovering uh, a hiding place, a secret place, is, is an inward desire to know him more dearly and deeply. And Moses said to God, show me your glory. God was going to give him an answer to his prayer, but he did it in an unusual way. In Exodus 33, verses 21 and following, it says, and the Lord said in response to Moses' request, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, 
I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. A very strange kind of a story here. Moses is seeking God's glory and God says, I'm going to put you in this little section, this little cleft of a rock and I'm going to cover you with my hand so that when I pass by and you see my glory, you don't see my face, but you see my back. And I'm wondering if this isn't a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. God is spirit, but Jesus being fully man does indeed have a back. (laughs) And so it's not like the the imagery of feathers that's just an image. There's a real, real vision, a real sighting, if you will, of God Most High, of El Shaddai here by Moses in the cleft of the rock. And because of that language, that's one of the reasons why I think the rabbis are right, that, that Moses did write Psalm 91, this imagery of he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Moses had that experience. And Jesus himself had an interaction, a couple of interactions with this passage in his life. And one of them is very unusual because right after Jesus' baptism, we find him being taken out into the wilderness, led out into the wilderness. And in Matthew chapter 4, we see what's commonly known as the temptation, the temptation of Jesus. The devil himself was tempting Jesus there in the wilderness in a great place of need. Uh, uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a dependence that Jesus had to experience on the Father. And he, did, he, ex- he expressed that dependence in the wilderness, out in this dry and desert area. And this is what the scriptures say. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone." And Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Very interesting that the devil actually used Psalm 91 as a talisman, you know, as an incantation. He tempted Jesus to do something and then to rely upon the promise, the apotropaic nature of, if you will, of Psalm 91 that would somehow ward off evil or protect Jesus from having actually thrown himself off of the pinnacle of the temple. And Jesus says, don't tempt the Lord. You know, sometimes we get into these difficult circumstances uh, and Jesus could have said, you know, I'm going to do that and see what God does on my behalf. But instead he says, no, don't tempt God. When we're in a difficult spot, We don't want to tempt God. We don't want to put ourselves unnecessarily in temptation in order for God to come through for us. We can say to God, God, why? 
And the answer comes back, why not? Difficulty comes. Challenges come. We don't want to try to tempt God by putting ourselves into difficult situations and challenging him to pull us out. He promises to be with us in each and every circumstance. And so I think it's very interesting that Jesus, in his response to the devil's temptation, tells us, don't do that. Don't try to use the scriptures as some sort of a magical incantation. That's not how it was intended, even though even in Jesus' time, that's exactly how people often wanted to use this passage, Psalm 91. And then there's one more allusion to Psalm 91 in the life and ministry of Jesus that really touched my heart because we see him towards the end of his ministry later on, Matthew chapter 23, where he's about to go to the cross. He knows that he's about to experience the most difficult uh, things that life could ever throw at someone who relies upon God, who knows what it means to be dwelling in his midst. And, and he knows this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to, watch this, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The weeping of Messiah over the disobedience of Jerusalem, of the people of Jerusalem, has this profound prophetic aspect to it. I've, I've seen this disobedience throughout the ages. I've looked down the corridor of time, Jesus says to Jerusalem, and I've noticed how you've treated those whom God has sent, the prophets, and I've longed to gather you under my wings the wings of the Almighty, the way a hen gathers her chicks. And so Jesus is basically telling Jerusalem, even though you've disobeyed, even though you've run away, even though you haven't dwelt or abided in the shadow of the Almighty, I'm still reaching out to call you. Come, come under the wings of the Almighty. There's a place of grace. There's a place of healing. There's a secret shelter that you can experience. El Shaddai, El Elyon, the high and lifted up one, the nurturing, strong God of your creator who's given you these inalienable rights. He wants to draw you in. And so committed was Jesus to establishing this place of grace for you and for me that not many days after he wept over Jerusalem, he stretched out his wings, if you will, his arms on a cruel cross, shedding his blood there on that cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. But because of who he is, because he is the Holy One, the Messiah, El Elyon, El Shaddai, because God in Jesus is all of these things to us. You see, when he died, death could not hold him. When he was buried, the grave could not keep him. And he rose again from the grave. And now that same resurrection power of God is available to all of those 
who will come and respond to the invitation of, the, of God himself to come under the wings of the Almighty, to come and to dwell in the secret place, in the shelter of the Most High. So, as we go through the challenges of life, we're not offered an absolution from all difficulty. We're not offered an escape from all harm. No, that's not what Psalm 91 gives us, but it provides us a stability. It provides us a refuge even in the midst of the crisis, and that's how we need to abide. That's how we need to orient ourselves, to find that secret place. Psalm 91 does not promise us an uneventful life, but uh, as that song uh, Amazing Grace says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's reaffirm this weekend our dependence upon God by f finding that place of grace, abiding in shelter and shadow. Let's reaffirm our dependence upon him. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to return and sing a special song related to this message. But let's seek the Lord in that quiet place, that place of grace. Father, we thank you for your words that have echoed down through the ages, even to this present day, that there is a place of grace, that there is a shelter in the storm, there, there is a hiding place. There is a place of grace under the wings, under the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, help us to seek that place, to shut the door, to find in your presence all of the riches of the blessing that you want to give us. And we will seek you. We will declare, again, our dependence upon you for all the goodness and all the protection and all the presence that we have with you until we are with you forever in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
secret place. May he cover you in the shadow of his wings. May he be your reward, your great deliverer. May he be your refuge and your fortress. And may we put our trust in him, right? He loves us. He cares for us. He wants to satisfy us and meet us in the place of our greatest need, even when we feel encompassed roundabout. So my prayer for you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, all of you who are here in this moment with me, my prayer is that the Lord would be close to you. And me too, <laughs> yeah. 
that he may keep you in every way, in your spirit, in your soul, in your mind. Ah, oh, those thinking, th thinking patterns of ours that get us into trouble. Lord, help us. And in our bodies, some of us need a real touch of the Lord. May he keep you in every way. May he deliver you. May he be all that you need now and always. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Go in his goodness and go in his grace. You are so greatly loved.